Welcome to episode number 24 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I am the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. And our guest today is The Brickster, whose self-titled YouTube channel has been hosting remastered video game music. Uh, You might have heard some of the Super Mario World music that went viral a few weeks ago. I was particularly fascinated with the research process, as it's a pretty interesting bit of archaeological digging, which we'd love around here. Brickster, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Thank you for having me on, Frank. Good to be here. Yeah, uh, we're really happy to have you. So just uh, we like to start the show off with just sort of the high level explanation stuff. So when we're talking about remastering music in the way that uh, you and and your sort of co-conspirators do, um, what is it that we're talking about? And is remastered the right word? I want to get ahead of that before we. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. That is a whole debate right yeah. there. Like, let's you have pause no that, idea. Let's pause that part. Okay, fine. Let's get to we'll that. have to get back to that later. Is that could that could literally go for like over fifteen minutes in and of itself. So. In the meantime, though, just what is it that we're talking about on a sort of high level when we talk about the work that you're doing? So, for Super Mario World in particular, um, that game is well, basically any game from the '90s. Really, that's from the era where. Composers would source their sounds from various different synths, samplers, and all that kind of thing, you know. And for Mario World in particular, you might know how its instruments don't really have a very distinct sound to it. They all just kind of sound like sine waves, like what's supposed to sound like strings, just uh, kind of just some sound like blitz and beeps. So how do you analyze something like that? So what we do in that case is that we use software such as VGM trends in order to rip the sounds from the game. And then what we do there is that there's a few processes we can do, such as waveform analysis and spectral analysis, with waveform analysis being, well, the waveform. And spectral analysis, um, basically what that is, is... um, there's a thing called a spectral graph that you can run audio through, you know, like how composers tend to hide images in their music in a way, kind of Mm -hmm. like with Doom 2016. It's basically using that same process. And what we do is that we get the in-game sound and then the sound that we think is it. And then we compare the two spectral graphs together. And then if we see that they're similar enough, we can then deduce from there that yes this is the sound or no this is not the sound sorry just to interrupt what what you're trying to uh showcase is like this is the compressed version of the same sound like we're looking at identical things but one is compressed on a super nintendo and one is you know the right you're you're essentially trying to figure out what the sort like the actual thing that the composer recorded you're attempting to go back in time and get a cleaner copy of it by analyzing what's in the game code right That's correct. We analyze what's in the game and then whenever we find the and then whenever we find a match for what we confirm the sources, we then record it from the original synth source to have it in the best quality that we can. Right. And so to be clear, I mean, yeah, you work in all kinds of mediums, but when we're talking about the Super Nintendo in particular, um, a lot of people might not realize that unlike, say, the, the, the regular Nintendo, the NES, um, the Super Nintendo isn't generating tones on its own. It's essentially 
all pre-recorded samples that the composer arranges and plays back, right? That's correct. So in the case of Super Mario World, then, we so was Ko- Koji Kondo, the composer, what was he recording from like where 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 were the original source uh samples used in in super mario world where were they coming from were they were they like you know like keyboards that he had in his studio were they like sound collections like like where where does where does koji kondo go for his instruments for super nintendo in this case we actually do know because there was a tour of Nintendo Studio from around 1989 or so which would have been around the time Mario World was being developed and there's actually a photo of Kondo that we deep analyzed so we basically know everything he would have been using for working on the game. In the case of Mario World it sources its samples from a couple of different places. Um, those being a Roland R8 machine for various drum samples a Roland D550, which is a rack mount version of the classic D50 synth. That is what is used for samples such as the strings, the the marimba, the slot bass, and then the Roland S550, which is not a synth in and of itself, but a sampler that can load samples from floppy disk or CD. He also used some samples from there, such as the sort of guitar that you hear in the overworld theme. And then he also had another one called the Kawaii K1R that he also used on the game, but this was only used for a few small things, such as a piano used in the game over theme and a few brass instruments. This is so cool, and I want to make sure we like adequately tell everyone how cool this is. This is the kind of research, you know, that historians do and i guess i had just never really thought that it was being done in this sort of adjacent field until you started explaining your process but i mean you're literally analyzing some old footage like a a photograph and some footage of koji kondo and like i'm like oh what is okay i think it's that instrument the synth and then being able to pick out the samples from analyzing those photographs i mean that's that's amazing it is really cool stuff um it's really hard work trying to analyze all this but it's really satisfying so what we do is that we look at all these reference photos and whatnot like there's one from around the time he was working on galaxy and then there's one from you when he was working on world and what we do is that we analyze all the instruments in that photo and then we document them onto a spreadsheet and then from there we can reference that spreadsheet so anytime we're listening to a game Kondo worked on, we can be like, what synth did he use? Then we can look at a list of synths that he was confirmed to use. And then we can look at each one to determine like where what sound came from. So in the case of, again, the Super Nintendo, the samples in the game, I can't imagine they're very long, right? They're probably very short clips of an instrument from a from a keyboard, right? Extremely short, actually. Um, This is during... So Mario World was being developed basically when the Super Nintendo was being developed. So because of that, Kondo didn't quite yet know what he could really do with the console. So as a result, all the instruments are very short. So, for example, something like the strings, that's just a single cycle waveform. It's There's like almost no detail to it at all. The fact that we even found it at all is kind of remarkable. <laughs> well, hang on. So, I mean, just in practical terms, because I don't know what that means, right? Um, how long is that? Way less than a second. Okay. 
So if you're analyzing this, you're hearing just kind of like essentially a beep, right? Like just kind of, right? Like, yeah, like, you, it honestly wouldn't sound out of place with something that you'd hear on a Commodore 64 without short it is. <laughs> and so you, you go, okay, that, that is the sound that is meant to be like the string section or whatever for, for this song. And then, so, I mean, what do you do from there? Typically, like you, you, you look at, the list of things that you know Kondo had at the time and you start, you know, I mean, do do you source a real thing and just start playing every instrument <laughs> until you find a match? Like, how, how do you do this? So if we're going to talk specifically about Mario World, admittedly, we didn't even know where to go with that front because the thing is, the samples in Mario World are not very detailed at all. So with the way that they are in-game, they could literally be anything it wasn't until um we found something from the giga leak where this was this is something that went underlooked um in the giga leak there was source code for a game called super mario advance and that game reuses instruments from mario world while it's not really that remarkable to most the reason why it interested us is that it gave names to what these very short samples were. So finally, we we're able to tell what was supposed to be what. Like, oh, this is supposed to be strings. This is supposed to be brass. Because otherwise, we were just like going in blindly because these samples just weren't detailed at all. Then uh, once we got those names to know like what these samples were, we then would go to these synths and then search all the string patches that they would have and then... Once we found one that we thought found similar, we then do our deep analysis there with like the spectral the spectral graphs and whatnot. And then once we have it as a match, we document the specific patch that was used and the songs that sound was used in. So okay, in this case, you didn't have in the in the sort of Giga League drop that had the source code for the Game Boy Advance port of Super Mario World. Uh, no, no, no. It was actually. Oh. It's so you know Super Mario All Stars, right? And how those are sort of like overhauls of the NES games. Yes. Super Super Mario Advance is a port of the All Stars version of Super Mario Brothers Two. Got it. Got it. Okay. So y- you essentially had um a list of file names of Fi- file names and uh, files that we could play. Oh, uh, you actually had files to play as well. Yeah, they were uh, basically they were AIF files, so we were able to listen to those. Got it. So I, I'm just kind of remembering a Twitter thread that that you and I were on now, and I, I think what, the way you explained it was there was a sample called Fantasy, and you started looking at the synths he used, and, you, and you're like, maybe it's Fantasia, and that was oh, a match. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that that was a sound that really eluded us because it just sounded like a glockenspiel or something. So we didn't really know. But then once we had, but then once we had like that listing saying fantasy, it's like, well, what patch sounds similar to fantasy? So we looked through a Sims, and then the D50 is most famous for its Fantasia sound, and. So we decided to do some comparisons, and then after some editing, we managed to find out that, yes, the Fantasy Sound is indeed an edited version of the Fantasia patch from the D50. So it's not always this easy, right? It's it's not always like that you have a file name. And in this case, it's, it's kind of necessary because in Mario World in particular, uh, the samples are so short that you a human ear probably can't recognize them. But 
Um, you know, in, in a typical case, I mean, you know, once you've got sort of an idea of a composer and what they had and, you know, maybe what instrument the sound was supposed to be, you know, what's your list, I guess, of of initial candidates to listen through? Is it like a thousand? Is it, is it 10? Like, like, do, do you have to listen through a lot of, of sample of, uh, you know, sound fonts and things in order to to find a match? Or is it usually uh, it mostly come? It comes down to us being familiar with the synths of that era. For example, there's one called the JV 1080 from 1994 that composers loved to use a lot in the server that we're in. We recognize these sounds very well. So if a game happens to use it, we can basically point it out immediately and be like, oh, that's a sound from this synth, you know, because it's a very sort of distinct sound to it. And for a game like... I don't know, Banjo-Kazooie, for example, we can rip samples from that and then we can um, like we can basically know just right off the bat that it's from that synth because there's nothing else that really sounds like it, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it comes from us basically being familiar with these sounds ahead of time, though for cases where we don't really know the sounds ahead of time or even have an idea of what the composer used, it's mostly just asking around until someone's all like, hey, wait a minute, I know where this sound is from. Because how we do this is that we do our research in one big server where we have over 1,000 members. So that's plenty of ears to listen to, like, whatever is being posted. So if some guy posts the sound is like, hey, what is this? Eventually, someone will recognize that sound and be like, oh, it's from this place. And then once we confirm it, we document it. I mean, is everyone in the server, do you all own this hardware or like some amount of this hardware and are just each have your own kind of expertise with this synth or that synth? Or, I mean, I'm- we have our ways of checking. Um, it comes from a few places most of the time because you gotta realize this old hardware is really expensive. So some of us do indeed have the hardware, while others are not as legitimate, truthfully. Um, so for stuff like the JV1080, we actually do have a VST for that officially from Roland, so we can use that. Um, some of these games, they like to pull their samples from sample CDs, but the problem with them is that they're not sold anymore because A, the company's not around anymore, or B, the sample CD used Ill- like samples that technically are illegal. So because of that, those CDs aren't sold anymore. So we basically have a rule that's all like, if this thing ain't sold anymore, we might as well host it, you know, because no one's going to be losing money if we have it here, right? Okay, wait, so if they're using samples that maybe weren't clear, does that mean the kind of research you do could potentially like bust someone like Nintendo for using a sample that they don't technically have the rights to? In theory, yes. And there's actually one very interesting example to where this could happen with the game Mario Kart DS. In the Bowser's Castle uh, musical track, you're not going to believe this, but but it uses a guitar, right? Mm-hmm. That guitar is sample for Michael Jackson's Black or White from around 57 seconds in. <laughs> <laughs> as far as we know, that's not on any sample CD out there, meaning that the composer likely had to go out of their way and sample that just to use it in the song. Knowing the Michael Jackson estate or whoever is very picky about copyright and fan projects, they could, in theory, sue Nintendo over that. 
because oh, the game boy. is the game is still sold on the Wii U. So I mean, hmm. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I I still can't believe what we found that like the server was like what like we 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 never would have guessed that they would sample Michael Jackson of all people actually, actually so no, it's not a sample one. but but there's a another Nintendo busting thing that I've got um that I just want to bring up because it's very funny to me is uh in the original Animal Crossing for the Nintendo sixty four the one that we did get over here. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the KK songs is just like a direct ripoff of that. Uh, oh God, what is the name of that jock jam? It's too unlimited. Uh, like y'all ready for this? Da, 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 da. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And it's obviously it's not in the, any other version of the song, but it's like. <laughs> never heard of that. Wow. <laughs> so Nintendo's not a stranger to, I guess, just randomly stealing music things <laughs> they to be fair in the case of the black or white sample it could have been unknowingly because the thing is with these old sample cds is that they would get their samples from all sorts of places you know so like they could be sampling metallica or something like that and the nintendo composers would never know because i mean the sample cds don't say that it's just like oh guitar here you go yeah. so, so someone else's fault yeah <laughs> it's most it's mostly unknowingly yeah well i mean i can think of a well i was gonna say famous but maybe it's only famous for me <laughs> with my particular interest but like there's sort of the famous example of of earthbound using um several samples like from like what john lennon i believe oh right? i have a i have a list of ones that we found let me get okay it. all right because, yeah, there's a couple, there's a, a lot of places to samples from. So what we have listed at the moment is that Earth Band samples from a couple of bands, such as John Lennon, Monty Python, Dinosaur Jr., Rick, I can't say that last name, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, and the Little Rascals. <laughs> well, Just Little Rascals, not a band. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. <laughs> Little Rascals was a series of um, short films in the 30s. It, it was their theme song. Um, oh so. well, it says it's from it says it's from something called Good Old Days, if that means anything. I think that's the title of the song that was the Little Rascals theme song. Um, oh. And I can I'm not going to attempt to mimic it with my mouth, but I I, <laughs> I can I can hear the theme in Earthbound, and it is yeah I I recognized that one actually when I played it. But um, uh, yeah, Earthbound does some weird stuff with Formix music. I mean, aside from the obvious weird sampling, of course. Um, its soundscape is almost kind of impossible to recreate as it does some weird stuff with the samples that just wouldn't work in higher quality. It's really odd. So when you say that, is the composer using sort of a clean sample, but using the Super Nintendo in real time while the game plays to alter the sample? Or are they altering it uh, before they record it? Um... So they record the sample and then they do some trickery in the Super Nintendo to manipulate it in a way to make it sound like something that it just doesn't otherwise, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, okay, when when you're talking about that list, actually, um, I've seen this, right? This is the Excel spreadsheet. For- uh, the, the newer VGM Soundsources uh, spreadsheet. Um, yeah, which we'll, we'll link to in the, in the, in the show notes because I, I find it fascinating and this is actually what made uh, us want to bring the Brickster on to talk about this stuff. Um, it's essentially just a giant spreadsheet of all of the samples that 
that uh, your server has identified in video game music, right? Correct. Yeah. So the, I mean, I've, there's so much there, right? I've, I've, I've barely skimmed it, but um, one of my favorites, like Kelsey mentioned KK Slider earlier, um, someone recognized a sample from KK Slider as coming from a, a rap man, which I think was a Casio keyboard, which I, I really appreciate. I just checked that and yeah, wow. I, I didn't know that myself. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I one of the first things I looked up on the spreadsheet is Sonic 3, because there's a lot of voice samples in there. Uh, um, of course you would want to know about that. Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> game to talk about. Well, okay. I, Hell, let's talk about it. Um, so there's, of course, the, you know, did Michael Jackson compose for this game or not stuff. But it is it is fact that there are Michael Jackson samples in Sonic 3, right? Yeah, that's fact. So there's um, the glass breaking from, I think, Jam was the name of the song. Um, I'm looking at it. I think it is because that is listed on the sheet, but it doesn't say specifically glass break. Yeah. and then. Um, actually, this isn't Jackson, but um, and but it's a really good example of of sound compression and how compression can change audio. Is um in one of the zones in Sonic Three Launch Base Zone. Wow, I, I pulled that out of my brain. I'm so happy. <laughs> in Launch Base Zone, um, they 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 use a sample from Run DMC. Um, and it's run DMC saying go, and that's kind of how it sounds in the, on the CD go, but in the, in the game it's like, you know, cause it's so, <laughs> it's so yeah. heavily compressed. So the sample, the reason why it's like that is in the case of Sonic three, um, for Sonic one, what they would do is that they would use the main processor for playing back samples, which resulted in fairly clean sample playback. For Sonic 2 and 3, they instead used the Master System processor to play back samples, so it sounds what? even more stuttery than usual. Okay, from a from a analytical perspective, is there is there a reason to do that? Do they do they gain something else? Um, I'm guessing they just offload it to the ZD, the Z80 processor, which is the master system processor, because they need more resources dedicated to the 68K processor, maybe? So they might have gained, like, gameplay speed. It wouldn't be, like, audio. Yeah, and then they yeah. would offload the audio stuff to the Z80 instead. So my master system could say, go. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I don't know actually, but that could be very well possible. Yeah. So I mean, to me, this is the more fascinating part of of the work you all are doing is the sort of archaeological digging to to figure out what composers used, and and I think that um, this is valuable historical research because you you are documenting the tools that composers used and by being able to sort of, you know, go back to the original and um, hear what that sample sounded like versus what it sounds like in the game. I think that, I think that gives a lot of insight into what the game development process was like at the time, especially for composition. For sure. I want to circle back to something I shouldn't have asked at the very beginning of the episode because it's going to take a long time to talk about. But um, I think Frank introduced what your work was as remastering, 
And I am really curious if that is the correct word to use here, uh, as opposed to, I don't know, restored or um, mixed. I don't, like, I don't know what the right word is and kind of even what those differences are. <laughs> um, this has actually been a subject of debate within our community and within the team working on the restores. But um, I don't think I would call it remastered as remastered kind of implies that you're going back to the source MIDI and samples recorded back then and using that. We aren't really doing that. We're just kind of outsiders in that regard. And also for something like the Mario World things, typically what you would do for a remaster or something is that you would use the exact same samples and all that, uh, but in higher quality because usually these composers would have them in higher quality versus what's exported into the final game. For what we're doing with Mario World, we're not really doing that. We're not recreating how it sounds in-game or, like, basically for Mario World, we're using the full synth patches, which doesn't really line up with what you would typically class as a remaster. Or even a restore, really, because a restore um, that implies that you're a restore at implies that you're just well cleaning up what's already there. But we're adding more than that. So what I would really class these as is more of demo styled versions. Because um, you mentioned Sonic earlier, right? You know how for Sonic One and Two, the composer Masato Nakamura they made these sort of MIDI versions that the composers would then transcribe. I would kind of class those as that in terms of how they are, but uh, I don't think many people really know what a demo style kind of thing is. So right. we generally classify our work as restored as there just isn't really any other good term out there for it. I'm just trying to think of what an analog would be like if it, it would be like, I don't know, the Beatles or something. If If you managed to like record their finger movements on a guitar at the time right and you could like <laughs> re and you could like program you know an, an animatronic arm to play exactly the same strums as they were doing at the time right but you're giving them uh and maybe it's probably even the same guitar but you're like recording it more cleanly or something and it's like it's not exactly you know like uh restoring the master recording it's more like recreating the master recording scientifically kind of because um what they would do for video games is that for the simps uh how synthesizers work is that they have various different notes for each of their instruments uh to make sure that sounds as realistic as possible so for example a strings patch would have like eight or 16 different individually recorded things just to sound as good as it can for a game and especially Mario world. They didn't really have the space for that. So they would sample only a single strings thing. So you'd be missing out a lot of what the original sound would be uh, with the restores. We do use those full sounds. So um, you hear a lot of details to the strings that you've never heard of before. And might not have, necessarily been the intention either right because i mean koji kondo knows what he's working with and knows that the full string sound is not going to be there i I don't think that i think there are some people who are like upset by that and i don't think that makes it 
incorrect at all or uh, or wrong to do. It's it's a really interesting exploration. I think even if it wasn't like quote unquote the intention of Koji Kondo to have a more full sounding string, for instance. I I guess since you're saying that, um, we've said this multiple times before, but our intentions with these restores are not to replace the original songs. These are just something that we're doing for fun because we thought it was cool and we and we decided to share it. And what do you know? It got popular. So um, anyhow, um, it's hard to say for sure if Kondo really intended these songs to sound like this because for all we know, he always... Because he probably might have like made them entirely just for the SNES sound and nothing more, but seeing as we have evidence of other composers making them on the full since then part into SNES, um, for a game like Mario RPG, for example, where in pre-release footage you can actually hear the songs be played in full on their synths before they were ported to the SNES, it's not like completely outlandish to assume that maybe Kondo like messed with these songs on fuller simps before working on SNES versions. It's not entirely outlandish to think that maybe he did that. Well, and again, what we're talking about too is uh, Kondo kind of snipping these samples down to, to fit in limited space. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's possible that his vision was a more, a robust sound and by the way when we're talking about that i mean what comes to mind for me is that when i'm listening to the uh restores of the super mario world soundtrack on your channel um i'm hearing a lot more uh, i'm not you know that musically inclined but i, I think the word would be reverb I'm, I'm hearing a lot more like texture to a lot of the instruments and I'm, I'm guessing that's because it's just a longer sample that you're taking it from right so the whole reverb thing, so that's a bit of a combination of things. So instruments have a thing called release. So what happens is that whenever you stop playing an instrument, what release does is that if you have zero release, for example, the instrument will then end immediately and not sound very natural. But if mm. you do add some release, it kind of like fades out a little bit before uh, the instrument stops playing to make it sound a bit more natural. So that's one thing that kind of contributes to that. And also, yes, some of these sounds do have uh, reverb effects on them, which uh, in the case of the Roland D50, for example, those would come with the synth. In fact, that synth is very well known just for its sort of reverb kind of sounds so for something like i guess the ghost house theme or haunted house that we did a while back you know that has a lot of reverb because well that's just what the d50 sound originally had you know so when you're putting these together you have essentially the um i don't know if it's literally midi data but you have you have the equivalent of of the midi data from the game right like the code that says you know, what instrument to play and and for how long, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what you're essentially doing is instead of it talking to the samples in the game, it's talking to new samples that you've recorded, right? That's essentially how that works, right? Yeah, it's instead talking to whatever we have is as our source. So, so for example, with the D50, it could be the D50 VST that Roland has for the K1. It could be a K1 VST that someone made for the S50 samples. It could either be real hardware because one of our friends actually has that, 
or it could be a conversion that we have for modern samplers since the S50 is not exactly something everyone has. So when you're putting these together, I guess this is where I was going with this. Is there is there some level of artistic interpretation um with the samples that the MIDI's talking to like like are you um are you are you making calls are are you determining per sample uh like you know okay i'm gonna let this one stretch a little longer or like i'm gonna snip this one down or is it is it essentially a a a scientific process uh so what we do for each song is that we start off by first even getting the instruments in place then from there we start off by adjusting each instrument one by one to have it better work with the song that we're working with, for example. So, for example, I guess the Haunted House track that I mentioned earlier, you know, if we were to be using these, uh, like, the Fantasia patch, for example, like, as is, it wouldn't really sound very good and sound very out of place. So what we do is that once we have the instrument in, we then go into the synth itself and then um, edit parameters on the patch in order to get it sounding more in line with how we think it should sound for the song that can either come down to editing it to match closer to the SNES sample or basically to whatever the restorer basically feels sounds best for the song. Got it. So we do that for each of the individual sounds for each song. And then we mix them and output them as a wave file that we then just put onto YouTube for others to listen to. I'm just thinking back now to Kondo and, and how, there is at least some evidence that he has composed past his boundaries, I guess. Um, What comes to mind for me is, are you familiar with the ending tune for Super Mario Brothers and how it seems like he had a second part to it and that it it actually shows up if you beat Mario 2? Yes, he yeah. yeah, he literally didn't have enough memory, so he had to cut it off the original NES release because the original NES game was only like 40 kilobytes in space. There just wasn't any more space available for him to do that, so he just had to cut it down. Yeah, and it's it's really obvious once you hear it too because it's just like this one movement repeated over and over. <laughs> like it, yeah. if you beat Super Mario Brothers, but if you beat two, then there's like this other section that comes in that makes it make more sense and then it loops back around to the the other one again Mm -hmm. so i i guess i bring that up as an example of like you know we there's you know this this is how deep you can go with this stuff right it's like well there's evidence that kondo didn't always know the limitations of the hardware right so yeah so maybe he meant for this string to sound richer than it does in the game Mm -hmm. yeah i just i i keep like visualizing a journalist at some point just actually playing these for Koji Kondo because I've really I just really want to see his reaction to this I that is something that I legitimately dream about from time to time because it's like (laughs) what what would Kondo think about these like would he like would he be offended by them would he like them would he like like how would he feel like that's something I would love to know one day well, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it really is like, wow, that is what it sounded like in my head. You know, like you don't, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say because for Nintendo in particular, they don't really have any contact for those internally in the company. It's all just private for the most part. Yeah, the, Nintendo has obscured email addresses even. It's like random strings. So, uh, 
you'll you'll never you'll never uh, brute force your way to Koji Kondo. Um, but actually, we do know because um, we talked to David Weiss recently, just unrelated. Oh. Um, and uh, we actually asked him about the Donkey Kong Country restoration uh, processes. And oh, that's actually, that's, that's really interesting that you mentioned that because he's gone on record to say that he always made those songs with the compressed samples. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to like see his take on that. Yeah, and that's exactly what he said. He said that there's no like definitive version that restores uh well what he said know. is that the definitive was what's in there right right, like, right what, yeah there's not there's not like a version that where you restore things and that's what he had in his head like he right. was very much working within the limitations yeah. there the there was no pre-console version it was always made for console with the compressed samples so that version is the version he always intended basically right but then i listen to the restorations and i'm like wow this is what it's supposed to sound like so. <laughs> Yeah, I totally get that, you know, like hearing like these classic songs like that we know with these like fuller samples and whatnot in higher quality. It's just really surreal, honestly. I remember when I first listened to Aquatic Ambience Restored, I was just completely blown away. It's like, yeah, this is amazing. Like that alone really made me want to get into this whole field of like researching and restoring things, really. I think the first time I got interested in that was when I was working on a commercial project called uh, Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Collection. I, I went, as I often do, I went really deep into the media and, and things that they released around the game. Um, and one of the things they released as a promotional thing for Street Fighter 2 was uh, it was a CD that I, I forget what they called it. I think they called it Sound Fights. And it was essentially like, it was, it's really stupid, but it's like, it'll play, you know, like track eight or whatever might be the Guile theme. And it'll be a sound fight of like Ryu versus Guile. And it'll be playing like, you know, the sound hits and it'll be panning left and right. Like they're fighting left to right. Like, it, I guess the idea being that you put on your headphones and you imagine people playing Street Fighter 2. That's an interesting concept for a CD. It kind of reminds you of like a sound drama kind of. Right, but the drama is just the fight. fight. Right? You just then, hear like a punch in your left ear and a kick. Right. In your right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you hear them panning left and right because they're like they're the fight is moving left and right. But That is so bizarre. But what, what got me thinking a lot about sound restoration for the first time was listening to that CD and the sound samples that they use are the sound samples in the game, but uncompressed. And just hearing Wait. like Sonic Boom, like uncompressed for the first <laughs> Wait, time really? was like, oh my God. Uh, Wait, yeah, yeah, for that's real. That's a thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. It's like, yeah, you guys should is find this that in CD. Street <laughs> I am searching right. for that CD after this. Is, is um, this in wow. the game, Frank? No. Well, first, like, because the samples are not isolated. Mm. Uh, we, we might have tried. But the sound samples aren't isolated. They're mixed in with the, the music and everything. So, I'm like, sure that we can probably, I'm sure someone in the server can probably get them out. We have some experts on that subject. Yeah, I think you should try. Um, I, am, I am definitely going to make them aware of this because I had no <laughs> idea that was a thing. That is really cool. Holy it is crap. really cool. Um, yeah, is there a way like, you know how there's programs for taking out like the white noise in the background of when you're recording a podcast or whatever? Like, can you? apply that same technology to the entire Street Fighter soundtrack to get rid of it. <laughs> Maybe I'd have to look into what kind of whole thing it is, you know, is I, I don't really have a frame of reference for how it sounds yet. So once I hear it, I can then determine from there 
what kind of approach is needed in order to isolate those sounds. Yeah, and uh, not to stay on the sound CD forever, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it I think it doesn't have literally every sound. Like I think it's missing some of the countdown numbers and stuff like that. Um, but it's it's been years since I worked on this, and even then, it was never serious. I was just like, you know. Try, I was doing research to determine if we could get the samples and uh, it didn't work. It out. does kind of remind me of one thing. There was a CD called Super Metroid Sound in Action, if I remember correctly. Um, you know how Super Metroid kind of has like some vocal narration at the very start of it, you know? Yeah. That CD had that, but in full quality. I was like, wait, this existed in higher quality? Like hearing that kind of was like, whoa. Like I, I didn't even know they recorded that in that fidelity, but yeah, they used that on the cd and i was like huh nice. well of course i did right like they weren't recording digitally live i would imagine it's probably on tape first I, I could be wrong i guess uh it might have been some digital setup they use something called sony news workstations around this era but they're very poorly documented so we don't really have much of an idea of what their full capabilities were sadly and again, Sony News, we know that because of the Giga League, I think. <laughs> uh, yes, and also that picture of Kondo, which has one on display. I'm curious how you got into this and kind of what your background is as a musician. Like, what, what brings someone to get into, into retro video game music restoration? So you want my own personal background on that whole kind of thing? Yes, but abridged. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I originally started in around, hmm, that would be around 2015 or so, which is whenever Roland released a VST called Sound Canvas VA. That's probably when I started um, getting into this whole thing, because then from there I had a synth that they used a lot in these classic games, and then from there I was kind of able to experiment it and use some of these classic sounds that these composers used back then but a lot of that was really just personal messing around nothing serious i didn't get into this whole thing fully until around 2018 or so where i joined the vgm server that we do all this like kind of stuff in and at the time i was basically clueless about all this whole thing even with my own personal research in mind you know so over time, I just learned more and more about what these composers used thanks to what was being posted in terms of findings in the server, reading the spreadsheet and whatnot. And that kind of takes me to now, where I am now a moderator for that server and conduct research on various games and document them. Okay, so let's just assume, quote-unquote, the worst, that that when when you're doing these restorations, it is sort of a derivative work. It's not really, you know bringing us closer to artist intent or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, is there still, is, is there still something you get out of this though? Like, do you, do you feel that you have, you know, maybe more of an historical understanding of how video game sound development was than, than most people and, and that you would have otherwise because you're able to sort of, um, dig deep and figure out what they used and how they used it uh i'd say i could yeah because it gives you an idea of like what all these like um composers and whatnot were using at the time because for a lot of people who aren't really into music you know it's like they have no idea where these sounds are coming from so to be able to like know where all these classic sounds come from then sort of see like a pattern of like what equipment composers commonly use and whatnot i just think that's like 
really cool to have documented. And for people who may want to use those sounds in their best quality, what they can do is they can go to the spreadsheet, see what that game or composer used, and then they can track that down themselves and use it in their own works, kind of creating like, like inspired songs from those games with the high quality sounds, if that makes sense. No, totally. Um, and and in the music world, it's like, that's that there's nothing crazy about that, right? Like that's no different to me than uh, getting inspired by an effects pedal that a band you liked used on their guitar and, and, you know, reading in a gear magazine, what they used and going out and buying that. Cause you want to sound like them. Yeah. You could uh, very much say it's like that. Yeah. Um, Kelsey, do you have anything else? That's about all I had. That's pretty much all I had too. This has been fascinating. Uh, I really, I think this is maybe a little different than some of the stuff we normally talk about, but uh, a little is probably generous, <laughs> if you ask me. No, you bring a lot it's of not. like historical research here. I mean, there's there is actual research going into this that is. I mean, to me, it's exactly in the same vein as what a historian does. Well, right, and I don't. I think I disagree. I don't think it's any different if you if you just change your way of thinking. Like I I I think of the I think of the YouTube videos as being the equivalent of of an article, right? Like like I've done my research and and here are my findings. Yeah, it's a basically a way of showcasing what we found. You know, we um, I mean, it is technically research, but most of the time when I'm doing this, it's just kind of a thing that I do for fun and for curiosity. I never really think of the grander scope of it. So to know that it's being regarded as like this like important research by others is honestly really cool. Frank, how many times have you, well, I guess maybe you're the wrong person to ask, but I don't think most of us historians typically get paid for the, the work. Um, <laughs> it's actually kind of interesting that you mentioned that. For for us in particular, yeah, none of us are getting paid to do any of this. And for the restores, I've gone out of my way, well, actually for my entire channel, really. I don't monetize anything because because these are derivative works, you know. It's like it wouldn't really be fair in my eyes to really be making money off of it. And not to mention, there are multiple contributors working on these restores, so that would be stealing money from them. So as a result, I don't monetize any of the work. So because I, because the thing is, none of us are here for money. We just upload these because we thought it was cool, and others would be interested to know that they would be like recognized globally like this by over two million people. Like that was never in our original vision. We just kind of had it for our small circle friends and that was it but now here we are here with multiple people interested in these resources and just the whole subject of it in general you know yeah and that's exactly my point is that i think this often more often than not is a labor of love and genuinely caring about the medium than it is about um you know some sort of rather than money determining whether something is legitimate or not you know i mean it's just it being a hobby and it being uh, a thing you're personally really interested into makes it makes it just as valid as any of the other work we're all doing. Well, and that said, that said, um, so I don't really do the commercial work much anymore. The the digital eclipse sort of you know commercial restoration of games projects, uh, but I still think about this subject a lot, um, and and I think that the way that commercial projects um, approach things like restoration is based a lot on evolving tastes. 
And uh, I'm going to make a bold prediction that um, sometime in the next five years, something will be released that attempts uh, similar work to this, because I, I think that I think that this work has captured imaginations. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it, it's something that will probably continue to be um, popularized. I, I, I think that it's now assumed, for example, that there will be Super Nintendo ROM hacks that that play uncompressed audio now. That's like, already a thing. Actually. That's already yeah. a thing. And I, <laughs> but I think it's just going to be assumed going forward. And and I think that the commercial world, um, intentionally or otherwise, um, gets inspired by you know the the tastes of, of sort of retro game players and and the things that they do to expand their games. And in the same way that I think, you know, Sonic. The Sonic Mania sort of restoration stuff has, has started to popularize uh, stretching the window to sixteen nine. I I I can, I can see a future where the work you're doing is going to inspire at least one commercial project to uh, attempt that. That would be really interesting, but I'm not really sure if anyone like in the commercial world would really have the time or dedication to be researching something like oh this, hell no i would hire yeah. you yeah oh. <laughs> <laughs> so just just go to the newer vgm spreadsheet that's all you need man <laughs> that's actually true and uh, I, I will not lie in doing some research for uh something we were pitching i did look at that um so. <laughs> yeah anyway i think that's about it for us uh Brickster, thank you so much for joining us on the Video Game History Hour. Where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on two main places online. You can find me on Twitter with the tag at LeBrickster. And you can also find me on YouTube uh, by the name The Brickster as well, which is where we post the Mario World restores and various other restores for other games as well. All right. Well, thank you again. No problem. It was a pleasure being on the show. Thank you for making this happen. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour, brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Austin Eller. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.